Our second reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 5. As we come to that, let's pray. Our Lord, our Heavenly Father, we are gathered here today not just to sing your praises, not just to have you hear our thoughts and our prayers, but to have you speak to us too. And in your word, Lord, you reveal yourself, you lay out your path of salvation for us. You do so many things for us, Lord, through your word. We pray, Lord, that today would be a day where we would grow. Help us, Lord, to hear your word and to take it to heart and mind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen down on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumours. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Amen. The world thinks that our, our beliefs are a fantasy, that our God does not exist, or that he is merely one option among many gods. And they believe that we can't be certain of God. They believe that he's a made-up God, created by men to make society behave a certain way, or that he was made up so that we may have some comfort in our lives and in our death. But of course, that is not why the church exists. 
we exist because we believe that there is a living God, mighty and powerful, who has revealed himself to the world, especially in his son, Jesus. And we know that unless we repent of our sins and come to him for salvation, then our future would only be judgment and hell. And our reading today is encouragement to us to stand firm in that belief. Because God did not start acting in the world when his son came. He has been ever present in the world since creation. That's what the Philistines and Israel saw for themselves. It's been a little while since we've been looking at Samuel, so let's recap a little. Israel is in the time of the judges. And in those days, the spiritual state of Israel would rise and fall. Uh, they would gradually fall away from God and God would bring judgment upon them and they would then cry out to him and he would raise up a judge to bring them back to him. And at this stage in the book of Samuel, Israel is at an all-time low. The priesthood had become corrupt. The word of God was hardly ever heard. And everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But in the middle of all of that, one faithful woman, Hannah, sought help from the Lord, and the Lord, through her, raised up Samuel to be his prophet, to carry his word to his people. But the very first word that Samuel received from the Lord was one of judgment against Israel, especially against the priesthood of Eli and his sons. And meanwhile, Israel went into battle against the Philistines, and they lost heavily. And they tried to change the outcome by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle. The Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's presence with them. And so they thought that by bringing it to the battle that they would win because God would be with them. But instead of winning, they lost. On that day, God brought his judgment against Israel and particularly against the house of Eli. Eli's two sons who came with the Ark of the Covenant were killed in battle. And when Eli heard the news, he died too. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured. The symbol of God's presence was removed from Israel. Israel had forgotten about God, really. They failed to abide by his ways. They treated him like some kind of good luck charm for the battle. And instead, God left Israel to fight the battle under their own strength. And Israel was defeated. The chief symbol of the presence of God was taken away by the Philistines. The ark of God was captured. And the problem was not God or his power. The problem was Israel and their corrupt priesthood. He was bringing judgment upon a people who did whatever was right in their own eyes. But in the eyes of a defeated people who had lost sight of God in their hearts, the question would, was, what happened to God? Where is his glory? Where is his might? Where is his power? Is the God of the Philistines greater than ours? Are the Philistines more powerful than God? 
Well, those questions would be answered very soon. Verse 1 says, After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. In the eyes of the Philistines, they had conquered the Israelites and their God. They heard that the Ark of the Covenant had come into the battlefield and they were afraid and they stirred themselves up into a frenzy and somehow they still won. And so they took this symbol of Israel's God and they placed it in their temple. And it is their way of saying, our God is greater. Your God has become a trophy, has become a subject of our God. Now at that time, the Ark of the Covenant was the greatest symbol of the Lord God that the Israelites had possessed. It symbolised the throne of God in heaven. And it was where atonement for sins of the people of Israel could be made. It symbolised his rule and his presence with his people. It symbolised salvation for them. And the ark would remain an important symbol until the coming of Christ. And so this placement of the ark in the temple of Dagon, the god of the Philistines, is not something that God will leave alone. Verse 3 says, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And this time his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And this is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. What happens here is, is almost comical. At first, the God of the Philistines is, is knocked over as if he bows down before the Lord God of Israel. And then after he is propped up again by the Philistines, he is knocked over again. And his head and his hands are broken off. Of course, there is a lot of symbolism here. The first thing we see, of course, is that God is greater than the God of the Philistines. We see the God of the Philistines bowing face down before the Lord. And then we see his head and his hands removed. Without his head, the Philistine God cannot hear or, or speak, cannot see. Without his hands, he cannot act. God is saying that this, this God is just an idol, a man-made idol, a thing of stone. The Philistine God called Dagon is a, a construct. He is an invention. He is a, a thing made by the hands of the Philistines. It, it was made by them. It only can stand up because they prop it up. It's a thing of stone. This God of the Philistines is, is not greater than the Lord God. It has no power. It has no will of its own. It, it can't act. It can't do anything. It can't see. It can't speak. It can't even hear. It's just a carved rock. And there is no God behind it. it. Is It isn't even a symbol of a greater being. It is nothing. But our God, the Lord God Almighty, is acting. In this 
temple of a, a fake, false, foreign God. The, the Lord God himself is at work. The statue doesn't fall by accident. Its hands and feet are not hands and its head are not cut off by some freak coincidence. There is no other hand at work. It is the Lord God himself knocking over this thing of stone. It is the Lord God who decapitates it and severs its hands from its body. It is the Lord God himself declaring his superiority over this fake God of the Philistines. Our God is great. Our God is mighty. He is real and living and he does things. The mistake that we can make is to forget that God is living and active. We can treat him like an idea or a concept. We do not worship a God of our own creation. He is our living God. He is who he is. And what he is, is what he is. He lives and acts in the world which he made. But sometimes we look at scripture and we look for natural explanations for events. We might look at creation and, and wonder how that could have happened naturally. Aside from supernatural power. You might look at events like the flood or prophecies or miracles and prefer a natural explanation. And this is certainly how the world desires to see things. And why is that? Because the idea of a God who lives and acts in this world that can create and can destroy is scary. People prefer the idea of a God who doesn't intervene, a God who does not act, a God who, who won't hold them to account for their actions. The very message of Scripture is the opposite. God is a God who acts. God is a God who speaks. God is a God who hears. God is a God who will judge. And there is no other God before him. And so we will all one day need to make an account before the God of heaven and earth for all we have done. A God who lives and acts can be a scary thing. And meanwhile, though, for the Israelites, it was the Philistines that were scary. They, they were not scared of God at all. They didn't fear him. To them, God was little in their eyes. That's why they could just live their lives their own way, do whatever was right in their own eyes. They had forgotten the glory of God. They had forgotten about his might and power. They had forgotten that he would judge them. The Philistines, though, they were the, their ever-present threat. They were the things, they were the ones that they were really afraid of. The Philistines were recent arrivals to the area. They weren't in the promised land when Joshua first came through it with all Israel. And the historical evidence suggests that they came from Crete. But they were armed to the teeth. 
They were equipped with superior weaponry. They fought with iron. They fought with chariots. And they were fearsome in battle. Perhaps the Philistines were the ones that Israelites really feared. They feared them more than God. Verse 6 says, The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod in its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumours. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. And so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with this ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath. In the end, it's the Philistines who are afraid. They're afraid of God. They're afraid of the consequences of his presence. They are afraid because God is acting against them. They say his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. They have no way of defending themselves. Not even their God can do anything. And so they push the ark around with their only care being for themselves. And so it goes from city to city. It goes from Ashdod to Gath, from Gath to Ekron, each city only caring to get it as far away from its own people as possible. And wherever the ark goes, disaster follows. God's judgment upon the people of that city follows and they are inflicted with tumours. Uh, tumours here can refer to swelling from disease or to cancerous type tumours, anything like that. It is a sickness that is brought upon the people and it brings them death too. And in chapter 6, we will also see that God was bringing plagues of rats and mice. And so crops were at risk too. People were dying and things were just getting worse. And the Philistines know exactly what is going on. They have come into the presence of a God who lives and acts of his own accords. And their very lives are at risk. They have seized hold of the symbol of the Israelite God and this God is bringing disease and death upon them. It's clear wherever the ark goes, disaster follows. And so as they bring it to Ekron, the people of Ekron protest. They are afraid. Their people are in a panic. People are just dying. And the rulers of the cities are brought together and together they determine that this Ark of the Covenant has got to go back to Israel. God is conquering the Philistines from within. God is mighty and powerful and he will bring judgment upon men. And to the Philistines this was scary. They could tell that it was the God of the Israelites that was bringing these things upon them. These disasters were not random events. They understood the cause. You, you might look back at such things and consider these people to be a superstitious lot. But in the next chapter, we will see that they were very logical in their consideration of these things. These weren't a gullible people at all. They weren't fools but they could easily see the relationship between the ark and the devastation they faced. 
they could see that God himself was bringing his hand down upon them. Verse 12 says, those who did not die were afflicted with tumours and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Their cries come up to heaven. Their cries were heard by God. But would God listen to the Philistines? Why are they crying out? Is it because of their sins? Is it because they're repenting? No. They're crying out because of their circumstances. They're crying out because the Lord God is inflicting them with diseases and plagues. These people are not crying out for true salvation. Only that they be saved from their present troubles. See, these people basically just want to go back to the worship of their own God. They don't want the God of Israel to be with them. They want the God of Israel to leave them alone. These people are polytheists. They are people who believe in many gods and they believe that they have a choice. And they choose Dagon. They don't choose the God of Israel. They can certainly appeal to the God of another nation for mercy because, but they're not seeking to change their ways. They're not even seeking to change which God they worshipped. And so when they cry out, it might be a cry for mercy, but it is only a cry for the Lord to just leave them alone. Their cries are heard in heaven. But only when the ark is returned to Israel will the Lord relent from the disaster that he is bringing upon the Philistines. God wasn't on a mercy mission for the Philistines. He was there to demonstrate his nature to Israel. The lesson is not for the Philistines. Their hearts and minds are closed to the Lord. What happened was a demonstration for Israel. And as God's people, it is a demonstration for us too. Dagon was a made-up God. But our God is not. He is a living and active God who made this world and who made all of us. And he cares about what is going on. And when things aren't right for his people, he will act. When his name is brought into disrepute, he will act. When his people need saving, he will act. And nothing in heaven or earth can stop him. Because our God is a living God, he, he is who he is. We don't get to choose what God is like. He is who he is. He acts as he decides. He is his own being. The first thing we need to take away is that God is real. He has been active in this world since its creation and we can see his handiwork in the creation all about us. But his handiwork can also be seen throughout history. 
and the changed lives of the people of Israel. We see God living and active in his son as he became flesh, as he became a man in this world where he lived and he spoke and acted for us. We know our God is living and active because of the work even of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. We have a conviction of God and of Christ and of our need for repentance and salvation. And if you have that conviction, that conviction exists within you because God lives in you. He is at work and he is acting even in your heart and mind. Our God is a living God. The second thing we need to take away is that he is who he is. You can't decide in your mind what God should be like. He already is what he is. His nature, his view of morality, his being, his plans, those are all his. And we don't get to choose what they are. We have his word, which tells us of his nature and his acts and his morality and his plans and all of the things that he has done. And we have no right to determine that separately or to change it. Some people want God to be something different than he is. And so they just try to redefine what he is. But how ridiculous is that for our living God? It would be like me trying to tell you what you think and what you like without even asking you. And if you said otherwise, just then to ignore you and carry on believing what I already thought. It's just stupidity. Our God is a living God. The only one who gets to say what he is like is him. Take, for example, one of the challenges that we have of seeing God's wrath like he has shown here against the Philistines is reconciling that with his love. We know the love of Christ who died for us. We all like the idea of forgiveness. And some people just like to leave it there. It's all good now. And I like to take these things from the Old Testament and kind of rub them out. God isn't like that. Or maybe he was like it then, but he's not like that now. But the New Testament is also about God's wrath too. Why does Jesus go to the cross? He goes to face God's wrath for our sins. He goes to that cross because we've rejected God. He goes there because of all those times where we simply did what was right in our own eyes. He goes to that cross because we've been living our own way. And Jesus suffered greatly on that cross for our sin. And that, that suffering and the extent of it grieved him so much in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was sweating blood. He faced contempt from everyone about him. He faced abandonment. He faced pain and anguish. He faced humiliation on that cross. And he faced death. 
all because of God's wrath for our sin. Only in Christ's suffering can the wrath of God be satisfied. You see, the New Testament is clear. Judgment comes for those who reject Jesus. The wrath of God comes to those who reject the Son. And that wrath will last for eternity. There is great love and mercy. But the wrath of God is there too. If we ignore the judgment and wrath of God, if we ignore the idea that God will punish us for our sins, then what is the gospel? It's broken, it's lame, it has no power anymore. There is great love in the New Testament. But we need salvation. We need to be saved from God's wrath. We need God to save us. Because God is a living and active God, we don't get to decide what he is like or what his rules are. The Lord alone defines his law. The Lord alone defines what is right and wrong. And you sin whenever you go against him. And you take a terrible risk if you take his word lightly or, or tweak it to your own preferences. Now God is a living and active God who brings judgment upon his enemies. And so for sinners, God can be truly terrifying. It's why the Philistines wanted God as far from themselves as possible. But the lesson here is not for the Philistines, but for the Israelites. They had forgotten his glory. Remember, they were living their lives their own way. They had forgotten that their God was a living and active God. They didn't even ask him to come into battle. They just took the Ark of the Covenant, assuming he would, he'd be dragged along with it. But in these events, as the Philistines face the reality of a living and active God, the Israelites would see God in a light that they had not seen him for in a while. They saw a living and active God who easily defeats their enemies. He is a powerful and mighty God and he was the one that they needed. They needed his saving hand. In these pages we see God actually begin his re-education of the people of Israel. And the very first lesson they need from God was, I am who I am. And I am powerful and mighty, mightier than any other God, mightier than your worst enemy. And this is our God too, mighty and powerful and ready to save. The Israelites needed God and, and we need him too. We need Christ, his son and his saving hand. This church exists because there is a living God willing to save us. We don't believe in a God that we made up inside our heads, but in the living God who revealed himself throughout history and most especially in his son, Jesus Christ. 
And this church exists because we know that when we repent of our sins and come to him for salvation, then we're able to draw near to God. We're able to know him, to become his children and to be saved from his wrath for our sins. And we'll be able to live forever with him in glory. Our God is a living, mighty God who saves. Amen. Let's pray. Now, Lord, our Heavenly Father, you are a mighty God, a powerful God, a living God, an active God. And you act in our lives, you act in this world, you, and you can do anything. All things are in your hands. Lord, we confess that many times we have forgotten this. We've forgotten that you are more powerful than our mightiest enemy. We've forgotten that you are in control of all the events of this world. We've forgotten sometimes even that you have saved us from our sins and we, and we worry and we fret. But you are a mighty God, powerful and willing to save. Oh Lord, help us to be reminded of your presence day in and day out. Help us to see around us the work of your hands in creation, in, in the lives of those about us, even in our own lives. Remind us, Lord, of your power and your might. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. During the next song, we'll be taking up an offering for the work of the Lord. We're going to sing in Christ alone.